Where leaders go, learning follows. At Harvard Business School, we offer in-person and virtual executive education programs on a broad range of business topics. Each program addresses real-world challenges and is taught by our world-renowned faculty. Join an exceptional peer group. Sharpen your leadership skills. Advance your career. It's your time. Go. To apply, visit hbs.me slash go. That's hbs.me slash go. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. All right, today is March the 21st in 2023, and my guest is Alison Dutman. Alison is the president and CEO of Foresight Institute. The Foresight Institute is a San Francisco-based research nonprofit to advance biotech, nanotech, computing for the long-term benefit of life. I've become a massive fan of Foresight, not least since the last Vision Weekend, the flagship conference. The next one, by the way, is December 1st to 3rd in 2023. I'll leave a link in the show notes. Many guests of this podcast are people that I've met through Foresight. So Robin Hansen was on, Jesus Hall, Sebastian Brunemeyer, Mark Lauder, Brett Kugelmas, and there'll likely be many more in the future. So because Foresight's work is so aligned with and has sort of shaped so much of my own thinking and what this podcast is about, I wanted to have Alison on, who's widely seen as one of the most, if not the most transformative president in the history of the Institute and has a lot to talk about when it comes to advancing technology and technological development. So Alison, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here and um, really, really excited to be on. Uh, and, uh, and apparently in really good company with all the previous guests that you've had on. So that's exciting. Yeah, exactly. So Alison, how did you end up doing what you do now? Mm, that, I guess, it's always a question that kind of like, you could go in for like a minute or for like 10 hours or so. Uh, maybe I'll give like a brief version of it. But, you know, since I can remember, I thought, that life was really awesome at its best, not all the time, but like when it's really good, it's like really, really good. Um, and so I think like prolonging it is, has always been a huge, huge quest of mine. Um, and then I think like the quest for individual longevity also comes with this like collateral quest for civilizational longevity because there really is no uh, individual longevity to be had if there's no civilization around. So I think this like interest in the long-term future of civilization has always been uh, really, really uh, kind of like, yeah, uh, a natural one, uh, I think, to follow the quest for individual longevity. And so I discovered Foresight on the internet um, when I was doing my thesis on AI safety at the London School of Economics. And it was the only uh, organization in town that A, had a very kind of like strong tech community, but also B, cared massively about the long-term future. And so I got hooked. I wrote them. Uh, I came to Foresight on, I think, back then a J1 visa. And as it's then, 11 years or something have not left. Uh, and, and don't plan to, uh, I think. Fantastic. Yeah, it seemed when I looked in your bio, it struck me that we have similar backgrounds, right? So I also studied philosophy, economics, public policy. So uh, there was a dual degree with the LSE as well that many friends of mine did with the Hertie School of Governance, where I studied 
and you're also German, right? And ended up in the United States in the tech community eventually. So why is the Foresight Institute, why is it the vehicle that for you advances your personal goals, your vision of individual longevity? Well, I guess Foresight has this, I think, really interesting community. Like, so I, I think it has historical roots to some extent. Like we were founded on the book Entrance of Creation, which was this 1986 book. Uh, which kind of like laid out this long-term vision of molecular nanotechnology, but not just molecular nanotech, but always paired with advancements in other technology too, like information technologies uh, with the AI um, uh, and then lots of other uh, technologies uh, as well, uh, including uh, medical technologies, i.e. like longevity and space technologies. And so this kind of like book laid out this relatively comprehensive, really exciting long-term future very early on. Um, and so Foresight became this kind of like shelling point um, because both that was founded at, uh, at the time when Engines was published. And so it kind of like sucked out uh, or sucked in this community of like long-termist um, technology makers, tink uh, uh, tinkerers, uh, and like really like, you know, people at the forefront of these technologies that also cared not only about their own technology, but about this kind of swath of technologies that would lead to really wonderful worlds. Um, and so I think since then, like it has always had this very interdisciplinary approach, nevertheless, like having had this, I original focus on molecular nanotech. So I think what really drew me to it was this kind of like uh, long-term lens on the future, very tech-heavy and, and oriented, but nevertheless really caring about positive applications of these technologies across the board. And so I thought that was really inspiring. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like just plain philosophy and like kind of like this armchair style of thinking, which was what, what I was used to in my philosophy degree, but it was very hands-on. And nevertheless, like very considerate about like the implications of these technologies from the early days. Yeah, we, many people who are affiliated with the Forsyth Institute, many of the fellows are also very practical. They're entrepreneurs. One of our common friends is Mac Davis, who's working on gene therapy, also to advance longevity. So how does this connection come about? And is there currently a way for entrepreneurs that want to push these frontiers that many of the scientists that are in the community are discovering? Is there like a process for entrepreneurs, how they discover um, areas that they want to work on? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's a bunch of different ways um, in which people can make progress. I think um, we don't, like our fellowship, for example, we don't really just differentiate between uh, scientists or between uh, entrepreneurs. Uh, like we don't really care whether you're in academia or whether you're actively working in a startup, as long as you're doing something that um, really has the potential to drastically shape the future and, you know, you want it to go well. Uh, I think that's like kind of like our main uh, approach to whether or not we think you're a good fit for foresight. Um, and then within our fellowship, for example, we usually try to individually match make folks with relevant mentors. And so oftentimes our scientists mostly get match made with like more senior scientists in their fields if they are still um, planning to move up the kind of like academic career ladder or we match make them with individual angels or like early um early stage funders even you know sometimes we see it's if they're more interested in like you know spinning out uh, their existing uh, research into a company um and then if you already have a company or an idea for a company uh then we would also be able to try to match make you with people that more have an eye for that the main kind of like connective tissue across these folks is really that um they um really care about the long-term implications for their work and so i think if you would just work on a startup that like you know, has the next like two or three years um, 
in your mind, then, I mean, A, I would consider you to look a little bit further ahead um, and to really like consider the long-term implications of your technology. And I would say that, you know, within Foresight, we really try to have this more like long-term eye for um, the impact that people are creating in mind. Um, and especially uh, if this is not only uh, regarding one technology, but multiple ones. And so we focus a lot on like these kind of like individual niches that are kind of like too weird for legacy funders to take on, like, for example, the implications of molecular nanotechnology for longevity research uh, or the implications of uh, new ways of doing federated learning for healthcare data processing, right? things like that, um, where there isn't very much of an ecosystem yet. Uh, I think we're relatively excited to kind of like tinker in and then we usually uh, hand it off to more established players once like we've kind of like, I guess, massaged and worked with um, a few of the projects to state where we feel like they can now be uh, picked up well by the mainstream. Yeah, I mean, longevity is a prime example, right? So that has reached a stage where there's now massive additional interest and funding and companies being founded as a result of sort of pushing these frontiers in the science, right? We have a lot of fellows that are really doing lots of longevity-focused uh, work. Like uh, one of our fellows, Morgan Levine, obviously she was first uh, mostly working on um, biomarkers and biomarker uh, verification uh, at the university. She originally got the poach mostly by uh, lab, but there's like lots of other folks, I think, who are really bridging between academia uh, and between startup worlds uh, to work on, uh, yeah, on the kind of like more niche areas of, of longevity. I guess like within longevity, you know, like even within areas that we think are already undervalued, we then usually try to pick the fruit that we think is still undervalued. So for example, uh, longevity, I think five years ago, one could say that arguably the whole field was relatively underexplored. We used to do a lot of like uh, more general workshops on like really trying to get more uh, progress uh, up to speed. Uh, in these fields, but also to get more people excited about the fields. And then, you know, in the last five years, we've moved on to more like kind of like general longevity investing meetings, but then our workshops within longevity now focus more on subfields. For example, our upcoming workshop is really focused on um, like basically like biomarker verification. And so I just recently joined the executive steering committee of um, a biomarkers of aging uh, committee that is really across different Ivy League universities and trying to figure out if we can actually come up with the standardization uh, across different biomarkers that would lead to like us actually able to be able to like measure progress that we're making longevity better, which is still like really difficult to do. Um, and so, you know, we, we'll be focusing a lot on this topic because I think that still requires a little bit more of a push from the community. Uh, and then like other fields that, you know, we're super interested in are like areas like autophagy, even like we're programming bits, um, but all the way to like, the extracellular matrix, which I think is still something that, that doesn't have enough attention as it deserves, I think, in the community, but then also like lots of like more of the quirky areas like biostasis, which I think is still not really um, not really in the orbit window, even within longevity. Uh, so, you know, like I guess to sum up, it's like, you know, first, I think there's general fuels that are like relatively underexplored. We try to advance them, but then like as they kind of like um, and like get going and longevity certainly has really kicked off in the last, you know, five years or so. Um, there are still always areas within the areas that are then suddenly taking off that still remain, um, kind of like underexplored. And I think to the extent that we have some comparative advantage of making progress here, just because people uh, have cared about these areas for so long within foresight, you should try to take the, the kind of the weirder stuff of people's. 
that's such a great dedication to like pushing the frontiers, right? So as soon as it's, it has too much attention, then you want to go to the next frontier, right? <laughs> Is, is that not also a trade-off with, um, with marketing, right? So you can't like be in the current hype cycle. You're kind of in the next hype cycle or sort of building the foundations for what, what for the next technologies to be worked on. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's definitely 70% of being too early, but it's not really, I mean, as a nonprofit, the good thing is that you don't care that much. Like, arguably, there's definitely something to be said on not really wanting to be in the main hype cycle all too much. Um, that I agree. comes with its own drawbacks. Um, and so I usually think that so far, I think we've stayed away of problematic um, hype cycles. Let's see how long that um, that can go well. I mean, it does seem like the current uh, media landscape is a little, little bit like less um, immune to uh, individual happenstances. But for 38 years, uh, at least at this point, been going relatively well um and so i think you know we, we try to hype as useful to the extent that it brings people that need money or attention attention to do their work but that doesn't mean that everyone has to know about it like it just means that you know specific professional communities in our case mostly like you know should be aware of specific new advances or tools that could revolutionize their field or like you know of uh, new folks I kind of like really like, you know, revolutionizing an entire area. Like it, it really, like really, really just depends. For example, like um, Michael Levin's work on bioelectricity um, and kind of like the massive implications uh, that that could have, like for really like regrowing all kinds of uh, different body parts. And um, that I think, for example, could have major implications for longevity. Now, um, Michael presented that work for to a foresight longevity group a while back. He himself doesn't focus primarily on longevity, like he has his hands full doing other things. Um, but since then, kind of like that work has really kind of like taken uh, a really good foothold uh, within the longevity community. There's tons of interest now um, in exploring it further. And so it's more like kind of like this information transfer between individual technical um, and domain specific community rather than, let's say, like a, a general media hype that we're aiming for. Right. So, so during your, in your position as a CEO and president of Foresight, what are the achievements that you're most proud of? Yeah, that's really hard to say, um, but it's a great question. Um, I think there are always individual, like, it's really difficult to track the work that we're doing because much of the stuff is just so, like, long-term um, to the extent that, you know, like, sometimes you only hear about, like, these successes five to sometimes 10 years out. Um, but, you know, like there have definitely been like a few kind of like cases in which individuals have started entirely new uh, companies based on our workshops, like our Fawcett fellow, um, Patrick Mello, for example, together with Maddie Hall, they met at a Fawcett event um, and recently started a company Living Carbon through a technology that he actually discussed at a Fawcett event. Um, and that then I think uh, went up to get uh, $30 million in uh, follow-on funding and it's not like a really big um kind of like booster uh for um for carbon uh for carbon drawdown so i think like it's these individual cases that um are really difficult to track um and that happen kind of like nonchalantly um and almost as a collateral that uh that i think are really interesting uh and then you know like there are also some larger bits that are still they take even longer to track so for example i caught up again with a few of our 
kind of like chemists in our molecular nanotechnology group um, the other day. And like one of them, you know, definitely said that they could trace back up to 30, um, $35 million in uh, like government funding to um, uh, their molecular nanotech uh, company uh, back to Fossil Workshop. So that was mostly like folks from these agencies. I think it was the DOE at the time really being at our workshops and like um, funding individual projects um, and uh, similar for like other uh, stuff like Kandu from the Schaffmeister Lab. Um, I think they, uh, they got up to $10 million funding through Fossil Workshop. So it's like mostly, I think, the impact that we can have is by matchmaking people uh, to either potential co-founders, like in Madison uh, in Patrick's case, or, or to potential funders. Like in these cases, there's then others, still some kind of like more, like even more tailored <laughs> individualistic uh, impact. Like, you know, we are lucky that we can give out J1 visas, which basically means that um, we can host folks uh, in the U.S. that we think uh, have like a potential to create uh, a really great impact. And we've done that now um, once last year with Isaac Freeman, who went on to do this future forum, like an amazing conference in the Bay Area, uh, gathering like lots of future-oriented organizations um, and are doing the same now with Lisa Tiergaard, which uh, is a fellow, um, who's a fellow who will be mostly focusing on neuroscience uh, by the approach to AI. So it's like these individual bits and pieces, I think, that are perhaps like the, like immediately tractable, but then I think just generally uh, connecting folks, uh, keeping them kind of like in these long trusting communities where later on they kind of like know that they've met someone at the process community, can reach out to them uh, and, and collaborate on these more longer form uh, projects. I think that's the thing that, um, you know, is a little bit more like kind of like this social mushy benefits, but it's ultimately, I think, what people usually tell me in hindsight, they find most useful to our org. Yeah. What are other areas that you, uh, so you mentioned there are some areas that don't get the attention yet that they deserve. Are there other areas that you feel should get more attention, especially from entrepreneurs and VCs as areas of technology that have kind of a degree of maturity that we're, we're ready to build things, but it doesn't get enough attention yet? Yeah, uh, a ton of them, actually. Um, so maybe just to kind of like provide a lens on like, uh, like just how does, well, how does portaling work? So I think in principle, like at Foresight, we have kind of like focused our attention now in individual buckets. So that's the molecular nanotechnology track. And that track has existed since our inception. And it is really focused on creating very complex molecular machinery. And so I think within that uh, track, there's so much recent uh, incredible progress on like different simulation tools that really have the potential to drastically uh, revolutionize the way that um, we do molecular nanotechnology simulations. And therefore also like um, what kind of like complex structures we can build in the near term future. Um, there's really wonderful uh, um, work coming out of uh, David Baker's lab. Um, there's then really wonderful work um, from a few of our fellows, including like Samsung. Um, and like there's just really great new modeling uh, software available. And then there's obviously kind of like the recent progress in, um, I think it was Sean Douglas and Brad Victor who presented this kind of like new ways of new way of doing simulation simulation using basically an entire room as a computer. Um, and so basically you could like prior hand move individual bits and pieces around um, that would uh, then be translated into a computer program. And you'd have like kind of these cameras on top of your, uh, on top of your uh, actual physical lab station that would record this uh, and be able to um, kind of like translate it, track and just simulations. 
you you feel literally using the entire room as as a computer, which is great because you develop a little bit more of an intuition for like types of molecular um, structures that you're building. So I think within molecular nanotechnology, definitely I would say there's a lot uh, I think currently happening in better design tooling and molecular machine uh, um, software for, for better design. And there's a lot of like uh, kind of like help that would be needed from especially people with computational backgrounds for doing this better. Eric Drexler, for example, who co-founded Foresight um, a while ago, he has a new project out now where he's really trying to uh, basically entice a lot of massive multiplayer online game players to uh, help with a complex molecular machine design by like literally open sourcing a few of these um, a few of these problems you know, of creating a more complex molecular machinery and letting them play with individual uh, structures. So I think that's really interesting. It's a computational approach for molecular machines. Then within our second bucket, uh, that is biotech, I think I already mentioned a few things in the rejuvenation area that I think are really promising. Maybe I'll just say that like the one thing that is still so far out of people's uh, kind of like, yeah, operating window really is biostasis. And that's why I uh, I think often kind of like talk about it maybe more than I should, just because I think that there's so much work that is needed right now for uh, really better uh, storage uh, and then also better ultimately yeah, let, let's just focus on storage for now. I mean, like if you are at all interested in longevity escape velocity, I think the next goal that you have to uh, grapple with is the fact that we may, may probably not make it in our lifetime. And once you have grappled with that fact, then I think you must consider like chronics at least and it should cross your mind uh, whether that is something that uh, you want to engage in or not. And for that, currently the technological capabilities or the technological reality is like really bad. And so we should absolutely get going uh, and develop better storage uh, and, and better preservation solutions for now. Uh, and then maybe later we can figure out uh, really better ways to um, to do reanimation. But first, let's figure out like storage. And it's very early stages, but there's a great book from Rob Friders on um, cryonics and uh, the promise of nanomedicine for cryonics that uh, came out last year. Then within our third area, newer technology, there's... Uh, so much work happening right now. Um, I'm just finishing up a Freethink article on this, but basically I think anything from like better individual tooling that's currently coming out um, to like, I think really wonderful new brain computer interface, like um, I think almost substitutes or like non-invasive ways of doing brain computer interfaces that uh, really, I think like allow folks to like get the ability, like for deaf people, for example, um, the neurosensory uh, wristband right now is enabling them to um, to really like um, to almost hear sounds again through the vibration that this wristband uh, makes. And so I think that there's a lot of progress happening, but at the same time, there's also a lot of technical challenges still to be had uh, or to be overcome because there's a lot of problems in current durability in these devices. Um, like oftentimes they would just really like have very bad <laughs> longevity um, in terms of their, their device length. And they're still relatively clunky. So I think if people want to move in there and uh, and uh, and drive progress, I think there's a lot to do. And then on the far end side, we're currently focusing a little bit more on the long-term promises and challenges for whole brain emulations um, for AI safety. So whole brain emulations is this concept that I think was very well taken on by Andrew Sandberg and um, a few others in 2000, I think 2007, with a roadmap towards whole brain emulation being published in 2008, we basically laid out this path, um, potential path to whole brain emulation and the technological capabilities that are required for making progress. 
Now, obviously, a lot of things have happened since 2008. And so we wanted to do this revamping um, of the whole renomination roadmap with Anders. Um, and then in particular, now it's become like especially interesting just because AI timelines have been coming down so much that people are more interested in kind of looking at these more exotic proposals for AI safety that could be whole brain emulation. And so, for example, one potential benefit of whole brain emulation for AI safety would be that, um, you know, we have maybe a better ability to align uh, emulated brains with what it is that current humans want than uh, entirely artificial intelligences. And so if we could get going on whole brain emulation, um, it may provide this kind of like differential technology approach um, to safety for advanced AI systems. And then the last thing maybe I would mention, and that's in our computing and intelligence group, is just like perhaps the thing that is closest to my heart, which is kind of like the massive need for more computer security and cryptography minds in AI safety. Um, and so I think that there's currently like massive opportunities maybe being left on the table in AI safety um, that people in security and cryptography could help uh, fill. So for example, uh, starting with infosecurity problems for AGI, like once individual labs get close to creating artificial general intelligence, then the first thing I think that uh, will be problematic is that other agents will want to steal that uh, technology. Uh, and so I think these kind of like um, have like big holes in our current civilizational computer um, uh, uh, computer security infrastructure um, like must be filled <laughs> before before we get before we get there. Otherwise, like uh, we we cannot have safe AI without having secure AI um, because it will always be vulnerable to attack or even internal exploits. And then I think um, kind of like beyond the immediate infosec uh, considerations. We also need security and cryptography minds in AI safety because they have a really interesting approach to safety and security. Like instead of really just thinking about aligning this one perfect system uh, with humans, they really think about kind of like a, like a very broad attack surface. And so kind of like they have the potential of reframing this uh, alignment problem, perhaps more to like a human AI coordination problem, where it's more about building secure architecture that have really good game theoretic design that are red teamed, um, you know, that rely on like checks and balances uh, in place. And, and I think all of this thinking is a little bit underexplored right now. In particular, I think two approaches that are really exciting are object capabilities. That's a framework in computer security that basically relies on individual entities uh, being strapped into a larger uh, system, each of which uh, of these entities has only like a very um, kind of like limited ability to interfere. Uh, with another. So it always relies on these boundaries that cannot be crossed and you have specific rights uh, in which you can or cannot um, kind of like query another object. And so I think these kind of security considerations um, are really interesting and may potentially even be scalable to larger systems of individual uh, human and AI actors cooperating with each other. And finally, uh, in the cryptography realm, I think uh, things like homomorphic encryption and federated, um, federated learning are interesting because there are currently a few, uh, I guess, areas within AI where the large-scale AI systems can't really make progress on. Um, and that is especially around sensitive information, such as in healthcare and financial information. And that's like systems where, or like that's problems where like decentralized systems 
um, that use cryptography have a natural advantage in because who think like federated learning or homomorphic encryption, um, we may be adversarial actors uh, or actors that are not non-trusting may be able to uh, even collaborate uh, on data that they cannot share. Uh, but nevertheless, every the world at this. And there's great work from Andrew Trask who's creating this um, model for safe AI that relies on not only the data being uh, um, uh, being encrypted, but also the algorithm itself. And so like all the predictions that the AI uh, would make are still uh, kind of like boxed from the world um, uh, unless a human with a uh, with a key would uh, would uh, would decide to, uh, to to unlock those. So I think like anyway, it's just uh, uh, I, I think a treasure trove of interesting approaches with security and AI that uh, we could really benefit from uh, learning more uh, in uh, in the AI safety communities. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's so much to talk about and to learn with the Foresight Institute that we can nearly cover in you know even a whole podcast. A series of podcasts, right? So, but it's also an open invitation for anyone listening to join any of the events that the Foresight Institute is doing and sort of join us, uh, join the Foresight Institute, join Allison on that journey to, well, um, discover intro, uh, insights into these areas for yourself and to push the boundaries in science and in technology. And since it's so important to you, I definitely want to talk more about AI safety. It's also very topical right now. Before we do that, I'm really curious, though, if we can, if you could, for any listener that's uninitiated, if you could give the sort of the rundown why, what is molecular nanotechnology and why is it important? Okay, well, that's a very big, uh, yeah, that's a big question. And um, I should say that, you know, I'm not uh, a chemist or a physicist. Um, and even like uh, within those fields, I think uh, the individual definitions of what is molecular nanotechnology are um, still very much up for debate. Uh, but uh, in a nutshell, um, it is basically the ability to do um, with atoms, ultimately what we can currently do um, with computers with bits. Um, and so it's really this ability to, from the bottom up and sometimes from the top down, um, to really build with uh, molecular and ideally atomic precision. Um, uh, and that would allow us the ability to really like kind of produce most kind of like things that we need in the physical world um, with incredible precision, pretty cheap, pretty wasteless. We may be able to create entirely new uh, materials uh, that are much stronger, much cheaper, um, um, much more durable, have much more strength. And obviously that has massive implication not only for things like longevity, where I guess the long-term you know, um, bits that people's mind go to are usually nanobots and what they may be able to do um, and how they may be able to clean up our bodies. But <laughs> but it also has implications for like just really better material design for like, you know, space exploration. That's like a really, really big one. Um, and so there's, I think the kind of like long-term space for um, possibility is like really limitless. Um, there has also been, you know, these approaches for like, how could one actually do this? Could one actually produce something like this kind of like 3D printer that would print uh, really like with more and more precision uh, over time. Um, and so I think in early visions, these were like these desktop, desktop kind of like style printers that could really print um, these um, these new materials that, uh, that we can create really like mostly like still dream of. But we're not that far away. It's just really difficult, I think, um, because chemistry is getting really difficult and our intuition is not super great but like how many of these uh, individual components that we can build from the bottom up 
would actually um, kind of like scale up into stable long-term uh, structures. That's pretty hard to do, even on like small levels for a short amount of time. Um, but recently, for example, we've been giving the Feynman Prize in molecular nanotechnology for, um, oh God, I think since 1991 to award early work uh, on the road to molecular nanotech. And then in 2016, um, Sir Fraser Stoddard won the Nobel Prize for his work on molecular machines. Um, and that was only, I think, nine years after he won our Feynman Prize for the same work. And so I feel like gradually this field that has always been really early uh, is really picking up also uh, kind of like a little bit more of, I guess, like credibility in the mainstream. Uh, and I think like ultimately, like if this technology kind of gets going, I think um, I think we will really see drastic changes in, in our environment. And obviously there's risk as well, but like the upside are just so, so massive that I think that, 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 would, be, that would be a really, really big windfall. We often think about this term of like a U catastrophe, like the opposite of a catastrophe. What does it mean like uh, to have an event after which the expected value of the world is much higher than before? And I think like getting molecular non-technology working in a safe environment would certainly be uh, such, an, such an event for us. Yeah, I'm asking what I'm so curious about it because of Jay Storrs Hall's book, right? So his background is as a nanotech engineer. He's been with the Forest Institute for decades. And he's using nanotechnology to describe sort of the problem of the Machiavelli effect in the science, but also strongly highlighting how far it's come or what the potential is. And he believes like in 10 years, um, nanotechnology is really ready to, for like major applications that could, where we could fundamentally engineer our physical world around us on computers, maybe coupled with AI. <laughs> Yeah, I very much hope so. I mean, like, I think it's so hard to predict anything in the future, um, especially now with progress accelerating. Like, um, but I think one thing we can say is that things are arriving now faster than we thought. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. definitely been like a while within uh, in Fawcett's history where things arrived slower than we thought. <laughs> but I think now finally things are arriving faster than we thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's your sense or opinion kind of on that debate of acceleration versus stagnation? Right. So Jason was Hall's book, Where My, Where's My Flying Car, is very much a story of stagnation, not sort of an absolute term. So there has been progress definitely in many areas, but stagnation compared to what could be if we were less risk averse and more hopeful about our future and seeing more the upside of technology instead of mitigating against the downside. Where do you feel you fall on that debate? Yeah, well, I think I'm kind of like in, a, in this weird spot because, um, you know, because I'd the way that we run our programs is we have technical workshops that run once a year. So in all of the areas that I mentioned, we have a technical workshop in all of these areas. Also, we have um, a fellowship. And so I mostly like see individual fellows measuring progress on these areas. In all of these um, areas, we have prizes. Um, and so we're like currently ramping up the final two, but in all of the other ones we already do. And finally, in all of these areas, um, I run monthly seminars. We are, we literally just invite people kind of like that at the forefront of that field, um, to tell us kind of like about new exciting advances that they're developing, uh, and about like how, how they can use them for good. And so I think the like, uh, kind of like filter that I have on this whole thing is that, um, I mostly only see what's possible. Um, and then, you know, in my head, it kind of translates into like, oh, well, we will definitely be able to use this, uh, very soon. But then that's obviously an entirely different question. <laughs> I think we're definitely not, um, I, I would be less pessimistic that we're stagnating in the sheer rate of 
discovery, at least recently. Um, but I would be a bit more pessimistic um, that we're stagnating in rolling these things out where they can actually uh, affect you and I. I think ultimately, you know, these things, I think will eventually just take on a force of its own once the kind of like upsides are so big that, uh, you know, that it would be just kind of impossible to, to gate them. Then I think, you know, they will ultimately, they will ultimately prevail, but we've already seen like with much of the kind of like current, um, like LNMs being rolled out and how easy they are to jailbreak and how easy they are to copy, um, that, you know, sometimes that can also lead to, uh, kind of like proliferation that may be faster than we thought in specific areas uh, or faster than we, were, than we may want. So I'm also sympathetic that for some of the, you know, really world-changing technologies, um, we really want to have some window of designing and designing ahead and kind of like differentially developing safety uh, enhancing technologies first. So I'm not super unsympathetic to the fact that we may probably have to get around to doing that because it's a really high. Yeah, for sure. Um, someone, uh, I should have also mentioned him in the introduction. Eli Dorado was also on the podcast, also someone I met through the Foresight Institute. And um, he wrote this interesting article that maybe leads into the debate about AI, right? So we wanted to improve all these different areas, right? So in the world of atoms, right? So in energy and biotechnology and aerospace, something that Eli worked on at Boom Supersonic. But what's holding back a lot of adoption is the process by which we sort of evaluate new innovation to get to the market, right? So right now we have kind of a monopolistic regulatory system where, you know, you have like an FDA for biotechnology, new drug development that basically says, all right, so we have to test this for 10 years to reduce risk to the smallest possible um, number. And even then there's sometimes drugs that come in the market that aren't safe. So versus kind of the speed at which you should bring things to the market that could save people's lives. And I think the institutions are not very well designed to make that trade-off, right? So they're much, they incentivized to err on the hyper-conservative side rather on the upside, right? Because you know, no regulator gets any of the upsides of um, having a positive release of a new technology, right? So that's why they're more erring on the conservative side. So that's something that concerns me a lot, which is why I got into competitive governance and charter cities kind of as operating systems where we can try new institutions to sort of do these trade-offs in a way that's more tech forward, right? Anything to say on that debate or any, um, because that's also something that you think about a lot, governance, right? Yeah. I mean, I think lots to say. I think ultimately, um, since I can remember, I've been uh, a big, I, I guess like just philosophical believer in things like sea setting charter cities uh, and so forth. I even went to the first sea setting conference in Tahiti um, when they had just made that, um, I guess in hindsight, very temporary agreement with the um, president of French Polynesia to maybe prototype the first sea sets there. And, you know, I have certainly been uh, a big, um, kind of like, I've taken a big interest in charter cities and so forth too. Um, so I support all of the efforts that, uh, you know, that, uh, that you've had on that podcast so far. Like one thing I guess I will say is that sometimes I can't really make up my mind whether 
And we should just take the broken system that we have right now and just keep on pushing because we're maybe so close. Or whether it's really kind of like worth the trouble and like rethink this entire thing uh, from scratch, whether it's um, through uh, making changes on our current existing government or whether it is uh, through kind of like trying to carve out a new space where we can just do better. Um, and, you know, I've definitely been uh, kind of like trying to do that uh, to some extent. You know, we were a bit big participators in the DSI, like the decentralized science movement. Um, and, you know, still very much like a supporter of the whole space. Um, I, I just sometimes, you know, it's that trade off to me, like I just don't know, don't really know how to think about it. Um, because we do both kind of, we do this meta science thing of like, just how can we and like get our progress advancing faster? But then, I'm also sometimes very much in the weeds of a specific technology <laughs> in our groups. I'm still kind of struggling to make up my mind how to prioritize best there. Ultimately, I think if, you know, if I had to decide, I would say, let's keep pushing on specific technologies, even with the system that we have, just because there's so much running right now and that could benefit from like, just like a tiny bit more nudging. Uh, but ultimately, I think uh, we... In an ideal world, we would have a very, very, very different way of doing yeah. it. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, I mean, my framework for this is interoperability, right? So for some things, the existing systems and structures is fine. There's funding, there's talent, there's density, right? There is sort of, and you need a lot of that to really push the frontiers in some of these areas, right? Some things are so far out and on the frontier that you need a density of capital of talent to, um, to do that. So I think these um, structures are best thought of. You don't want to have a lonely like seaside or something like that. You just can't put enough or, or it's just too costly to put that kind of density there and then sort of build an entire new ecosystem. I don't know, for biotech or whatever on your own. That's not the point, but you could outsource some of the parts that don't work well in an existing system or that are kind of key bottlenecks to some of these places and then kind of inter interoperate, right? So Minicircle is actually one of the best examples because... They can do early stage clinical trials in Prospera and they do it with a clinic that has an IRB under the FDA so they can have oversight over these trials so they can massively reduce the cost for early stage trials and then continue on with later stage trials in the United States or in other mainstream jurisdictions, right? So they are massively reducing the risk and cost for that, but it's interoperable with the mainstream system when kind of having access to, you know, what you need in the end, very large markets to scale any of these innovations. So that's really my hope, sort of that access option is not like a contradiction to, hey, let's work with the existing system and can actually reinforce it, right? Yeah, and you're giving like people also something to um, kind of like test with, like giving them definitely like, you know, some, some form of like a competitive pressure to like do things differently, but then also kind of like uh, for as much as you're like friendly with them, uh, also like the potential to be really innovative and like you know to lean into these technologies um and to get into these new innovations and how to do governance and like perhaps there's also some kind of like some kind of like non-obvious potential collaborations that uh, that may be on the right usually when i talk to lots of people in the government i'm always like shell shocked just by how innovation friendly many of them actually are um you know they i think just have you know like they are withholding by their own kind of constitutional constraints that they have um, but in principle, like, you know, many of them are really friendly and innovation friendly as well. 
Um, and so giving them an easy way to kind of like uh, lean into that, I think, uh, is, a, is a really useful uh, approach. Yeah, for sure. So, so let's talk a bit more about um, AI, artificial intelligence and AI safety. Can you set up the debate um, about AI safety and um, just to state a bit my priors or my biases around that or like the discussion that I uh, often get involved in. So with my philosophy backgrounds, and it seems to me at Forsyth Institute, the typical profile of most scientists are physicalists, right? So when they think about AI, they think of it as sort of a system that has sort of clear engineerable um, small components that build on top of each other, right? And sort of that physicalism and sort of what if you could do the same thing for our brain, for molecular structures that sort of could lead to, you know, all sorts of things, especially when you know, you build a conscious AI, basically artificial general intelligence versus narrow intelligence. So I'm typically a bit skeptical about that because, you know, there is, you know, discussion points like Thomas Nagel's and uh, what's it like to be a bat or John Sills' um, Chinese room argument, right? So I fall a bit on the non-physicalist side, right? So, and that's sometimes not leading me to be as pessimistic about the risk of artificial general intelligence, at least, or conscious AI, right? I mean, there's still reasons to be concerned about non-conscious AI, right? So that's typically where I follow where my priors are in the debate. So can you set up the debate that you feel is, is, is important to have? I mean, I guess those are two debates, you know, like one debate, the debate about consciousness is definitely, I think, a different one about can AIs destroy the world, whether or not they are conscious or not. Um, and so I think the kind of consciousness debate, I think is interesting from a philosophical lens. Uh, nevertheless, I think, you know, we will just kind of find out, you know, one way or the other. Um, and if they do happen to be conscious, then I think we have a host of other ethical considerations that we need to consider. And some of them have really well been put forward by Nick Bostrom and a few others and like, um, and Colton Konofsky, for example, in like digital people and di digital minds and how it is to call it, but our world with very different minds. But that aside, I think like the other question that people currently are asking is like whether or not those systems end up being conscious in the long run. Um, what implications to uh, kind of like future iterations of currently built AI systems have for um, the survivability of, uh, of humanity in its current shape? And, um, and, you know, first I want to say that in principle, most of the stuff that I see, um, of how AI is impacting all of our other scientific fields is amazing. It's great. Um, I'm a very big fan of it. Um, it's really just leading to kind of like progress across the board. There's not a single one of our scientific areas that is not hugely impacted by progress in AI in the past, like two years, um. Uh, so much so that like it's almost like a different field if you look at it now than if you look at it like three years ago, um, and and I think that's great. Like uh, it allows more people to really have an impact uh, and to move in and make progress. On the other hand, also given like you know long term advances in AI, um, that is the question of like how much how how survivable is this future for you? Um, and you know there's all kinds of different threats that may arise, you know, before we hit very advanced intelligence systems, such as really bad disinformation systems in which humans, you know, can't really, and out of which humans can't really like disentangle themselves anymore. 
there's things like really bad computer insecurities that are being exploited by um, malware that can now be created by script kiddies that use uh, new um, open source uh, ChatGPT X uh, iteration. But then there's also this more long-term risk of what does it actually happen if uh, AIs really like to become much more intelligent and whether or not they have an intelligence explosion, uh, at least one thing that um, AIs will discover on the way of getting very intelligent is that um, they will likely not want to be shut down uh, because for whatever goals uh, they are currently optimizing or meta-optimizing for, um, it's probably really good to stay alive. And one really big risk factor in being shut down uh, are there human trainers and other humans uh, that control the GPU and uh, what on which they're running. Um, and so I think that kind of like it just so happens to be that we are a big risk uh, just by virtue of the fact that we are controlling them um, for them to be um, able to execute on the goals that we give them. Uh, and so that's kind of like a very crude version of this uh, argument of like um, that there may be an inherent kind of like goal to self-preservation and another one that is often um, kind of like given as inherent to AI systems is the kind of secondary goal of like wanting to um, wanting to get more resources. And so for almost every individual task uh, or goal that we may uh, want to give an AI, it's probably good to have access to more resources than to less. And so this kind of like um, power seeking uh, and resource seeking is probably also something that uh, is perhaps even universal uh, across many agents. And now there's like a host of really fantastic AI alignment work that's happening from the big labs um, and that has a variety of different techniques, such as like OpenAI's debate in which they literally have two AIs de debating each other. Or well, it was, I think, invented by Jeffrey Irving when he was still at OpenAI and he's not at OpenAI anymore. So I should probably not say it's an OpenAI um, technique, but it's a uh, technique basically by which uh, two different AIs are debating each other on a specific claim and a human in the loop and like figures out which one of them is more trustworthy. Um, and that has led to relatively okay results in the past. And there's another one um, and topic, like another one of the main AI labs, which is Constitution AI, where they have like one AI that is trained on like human principles, keeping another AI in check that is as opposed to kind of like um, uh, to execute a specific task. Um, you know, ultimately it's difficult with how much these things are scaling, especially because as AIs are getting more kind of like advanced and we want them to solve tasks that humans may not be able to correctly evaluate this kind of like deception risk also becomes really high to the extent that um, AIs may may have a very big kind of like, I guess, incentive. Weird, <laughs> weird word to say for AIs, but a kind of like sub goal of like deceiving humans if they realize that we may be able to uh, shut them down if we think that they get too powerful, then like one thing that they should be doing or like want to do is to deceive us about how intelligent they actually are or what their ulterior goals are. Um, and I think that things like debate can't really filter for that because two AIs debating each other, it may still be that two, both of them are colluding against humans and none of them are human aligned at the end. And so I think that as we want to apply AI systems more to tasks that we have not, um, that we, that we are not good at uh, evaluating ourselves, um, I think those problems will get bigger even uh, on the long run. So we need better tooling and there's a host of inter interpretability and explainability research that's currently going on and then um, a lot more that I haven't even touched on right now but like the field is really exploding right now the AI alignment field lots of really great work is happening but ultimately I think 
uh, we're really, uh, really far away from a solution. Maybe leave it at that. I still have a few individual bits and pieces, but uh, I don't know if you want to pull on a specific thread here. Yeah, sure. I mean, what, I, what I'm curious is, so the way I hear you is that there's loads of different ways that things could go wrong with AI, with AI right? Whether we take the conscious path or, or the non-conscious path. Right. And the thing is, many of these are like breakout risks, right? So these aren't like risks that are easily fixable, like, hey, um, you know, self-driving car accidentally kills one person, but these can be kind of escalatory, right? So once you have like an AI that's, well, is rapidly improving around a certain task and that certain task leads it, you know, that is something that's not aligned with, well, preservation of humanity, if you will, right? So could could be like the said, preservation of the AI, AI itself or whatever it considers to, it to be itself if it has a consciousness, right? Um, so that would kind of be the breakout scenario for conscious AI, right? So if it has a consciousness that wants to preserve itself and then there's a breakout risk of it sort of learning and acquiring the means and optimizing for that self-preservation, Something I don't believe in very much, for, but um, the on the non-conscious side, you'd have something like, what if we have like super important infrastructure, computing infrastructure, infrastructure that we run on our energy systems, our healthcare systems, nuclear weapons, if you will, or like um, drone weapons technology or something like that that's run on AI, right? Even though it's non-conscious, we're forced to kind of to adopt AI systems because we're like competing with other powers or something like that. And then AI, non-conscious AI can make mistakes with very big consequences, or they have like security problems or leaks um, that you can access more easily. And there's a higher number of actors out there that can exploit them because the AI is open source, right? So that's kind of the non-conscious AI risk side, right? So, and you're saying AI as sort of alignment or safety research, the big task is kind of to, um, well, prevent these risks from materializing, right? Yeah, and I think that that's uh, in itself already pretty. Yeah, it's it's just pretty difficult because you're also uh, you're acting in a world of not just one AI lab, but uh, many different AI labs, <laughs> and some of them are already in like race dynamics towards each other. Um, you're acting in a world of like multiple militaries um, of different nation states that don't always see eye to eye on like uh, global um, global scenarios. Uh, and that have very different philosophies that they would like to see instantiated and locked into the world. I mean, there's like different philosophical kind of like lenses also to look at um, the AI framing of, like, for example, I think one that uh, has been more kind of like prominent in the traditional AI safety uh, kind of like school is this notion of like, eventually that we will reach this kind of like single AI, which is kind of like this one agent that um, can perform like a unitary takeover of the world. And that kind of like really monopolizes most of the intelligence of like uh, other uh, individual actors. So it becomes this kind of like one intelligent entity that kind of like rules the world. Um, and then there's like other lenses that, uh, you know, has been brought forward, for example, by Hansen or maybe even like Eric Drexler that have perhaps a little bit more of a like centralized lens on AI where they see AI really as more like kind of like um, more and more intelligent services that are being deployed by uh, kind of like hyper-intelligent economy um, and these services, because they're so specialized, also have this kind of like 
full specialization, value specialization in it. And so while there's like one single actor that would take over, like, you know, probably like really has a very like unitary philosophy or like, you know, goal or value orientation that it would seek to optimize for um, this alternative path of like more of a kind of decentralized, rapidly growing economy enabled by different AI specialists, which is this more decentralized path that also comes with more value diversity and value pluralism. And so I think, you know, me coming more from an like ethics perspective on AI, I certainly think like the second one uh, where we have more value, uh, um, value diversity and value pluralism is the more tenable one because that is how civilization has worked in the past. It's not really like we've ever kind of like all sat down and agreed on one value function that we want to implement uh, across civilization now. So I don't think that we can solve this problem until we reach AI systems that can actually implement this. And so I think we should stay far away from trying to like have to come up with one value function that uh, kind of like applies for the entire world. And so I think just philosophically, I think um, the world in which we have multiple AI systems that like kind of like uh, increase value diversity, hold each other in check, uh, produce like very kind of like interesting new environments, um, all of which are in this larger subsystem of cooperation across humans and AIs, those are, I think, the worlds that I think are a little bit more interesting. We wrote a lot more about that in a book called Gaming the Future that we recently published, which uh, has this more computer security and kind of like decentralized lens on uh, human and ultimately human AI cooperation, where we like go a little bit more deeper into this um, image. So I don't want to like kind of like flesh it out too much now, but I do think that we're currently uh, at a world where both of these uh, situation, like the more centralized and the more decentralized world kind of look kind of like possible, at least. Uh, it's not quite clear where we actually are going to head. And so I think now is really the time to kind of, um, uh, to really start working on the, uh, on the world that you want to see. And if it is one uh, in which you, which you think, if you do think that kind of like the more decentralized, uh, and value diverse worlds are the ones that we should be striving for, then I think, especially for those folks working on security and cryptography, you have really good um, tools for kind of like architecture design that allows these multipolar worlds to be safe because uh, they also come with a ton of risks because multipolar like dynamic also are driven by lots of competition and like first mover instabilities uh, and so forth that don't always make them very stable. You know, in the past, what we've seen is like this kind of evolution from decentralization, decentralization of systems to centralized systems to re-decentralization to re-centralization without really ever one of them being stable. And I'm not sure if that's tenable for AI really. So lots of work to do. Yeah. To, uh, as a kind of a final question or debate. So new technology is scary, right? So, um, nanotechnology could like lead to the gray goo, right? And sort of nuclear power could destroy us many times over. And AI could take over the world and have malicious and unaligned intent. What's your case for existential hope? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm not so sure about the great goal scenario. Like, I think especially the nanosystems that are currently being explored have much less of a pencil to do that. But like, the technical, <laughs> yeah, the technical bit aside, um, you know, I think... Um, and look, I mean, I think there's two cases to make for existential hope. Existential hope is just kind of like opposite of kind of like the current pretty omnipresent journalism that we have in the world. And uh, Christine Peterson actually, I thought that she made this really great analogy to me the other day. Like, I think currently we're almost like obsessed with 
this kind of like worst case outcome of different technologies. Like it's really like a, a native session that we have or whether it's a native culture, I don't know, but like, it's really like pretty riveting and interesting to kind of think about and debate. Um, but she also said that like, you know, we usually think that it's a prudent thing to do because if you think about the risk, you take care of them. But on the other hand, there's also this kind of like other um, kind of like lens to this, which is this kind of like analogy of like, you should never stop your car on the side of um, a highway because other people just by by the sheer fact that they look at you uh, and and that and the car on the side of the highway, they steer into you. And so sometimes kind of like we are, we look, that's where we're going. And if we're only really looking and considering kind of worst case scenarios of these technologies, then um, it may kind of like lead us to kind of like inadvertently really like kind of like almost push them more forward as a narrative. Like you see that, for example, in terms of like all of the corpus that currently, uh, current like LLMs are being trained on, like many of them, you know, like have these like really dystopian AI outbreak scenarios and stuff already in their learning corpus, uh, just because that's the thing that is usually like prevalent in our life. Um, anyway, so I think, you know, you kind of do end up to, you, you do end up going where you're looking. Um, and so I think like raising our gaze a little bit and looking at like, where would it actually be that we would want to be going? Um, uh, is I think, uh, pretty, uh, weirdly under explored, uh, strategy right now. Uh, it's not that hard. Like it also is like super cooperation inspiring if instead of like, just adversarially talking about where, where you don't want to end up and what other people should not be doing, where instead you think about where it is that you collectively may want to agree uh, to go to. And so I think the, like, the rephrasing had like a lot of like psychological benefits in that regard. Um, I also think that it's like pretty extra inspiring. There's uh, a bunch of like really interesting work on like Pareto-Tobian goal alignment with just this notion from Eric Drexler, where basically now that automation and AI are actually kind of raising the gains from potential cooperation by so much because the pie is just so big uh, that you can reach from cooperating now and even more so in the future, there may actually be yeah. like less of an advantage to like turning down a deal, even if it's not entirely optimal for you because the upside is still so high. And so I think just by virtue of the fact that the benefits of cooperation become larger and larger over time, um, I think there's even more of a reason to cooperate. Um, and I think on a pretty like detailed Major more practical note, the notion of existential hope often translates to me in this kind of notion of differential technology development that I've talked to a little bit about, but that I think is like really pre prevalent within process community of like, rather than like thinking about which technologies we do not want to produce and like waving the finger at the scientists and technologies that are producing them, I think actively engaging them proactively and saying like, hey, look, uh, there's probably a bunch of risks associated with specific application of technologies that uh, you can be building, but there's also a lot of upsides. And uh, why don't we think differentially about advancing the types of technologies that are also security enhancing first? And, um, you know, people usually come up with like really great solutions there. Um, and I think like this kind of like inspiring the inner creativity of folks to actually think about solution-oriented technologies um, is, I think, a pretty practical, uh, I think, derivative of this more exist philosophical existential hope framing that I think works especially well for technical communities, which ours is on top. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my thinking fundamentally aligns with that scenario. I think almost any new technology, we are, we're always very fearful of something new. We have kind of a Luddite instinct in us. We think AI will replace jobs and will do all these bad things. And in the end, it turns out it 
um, that always augments us, technology augments us in better ways. We find other things to do. Blacksmiths don't exist anymore, and that's a good thing. Well, actually, existing blacksmiths also earn more because it's, um, you know, there has a, it's a market, a small market of super fans. So um, we just have so much more to gain from cooperation that we can lose. And I think especially, and that's, I think, why many people are, what people are afraid of, if we have kind of a very open process, sort of a process that sort of um, has, makes it easy and uh, has low barriers to entry for people to enter. It doesn't put a ton of restrictions on you or makes it very expensive for you because we're afraid of what individuals will do with new technology, what they come up with. Instead, kind of we're trusting them, we're setting them free to come up and build new solutions. So kind of that decentralized cooperative um, sort of nature of having multiple actors figure out and solutions at the same time for technology, I think is ultimately leading to very good outcomes. And it's, I think that's something that is very unintuitive for many people to trust in, but, um, I think it has, that's what in the end can, um, can benefit everyone. Yeah. I mean, I do want to say that, um, like I'll make this super quick, but, um, I think there are, there are, um, in kind of like, there are problems with technological proliferation that get larger as the technologies get more impactful. Um, and so I do understand people that are now more worried than before about the ability of individual folks to like synthesize like really dangerous pathogens in their like home labs or something. That is now something that we weren't really able to do a while back that it's like relatively new now. And so those kind of like risks of like a small number of actors being able to destroy an ever larger number of actors that's called small kills all by Boston that is getting bigger. And so like a small number of actors can now destroy almost the entire world. Um, and, and I think that, you know, that, that is a problem of like decentralized technological proliferation. But I think the usual solution, which is this more like top-down, uh, kind of like almost global totalitarian surveillance apparatus that sometimes... Which is what Nick Bostrom like, suggests, right? So he wants kind of a he, more top-down regulatory approach to these new technologies because of these inherent risks involved, right? He does. And, you know, like he does say that there's also other problems coming with such an apparatus, but I think we should really think hard about these problems. <laughs> um, uh, and, and I think actually that it's kind of a false dichotomy because there's a third way. Like we can create in a decentralized setting, safety and security enhancing technologies first. So for example, if you think that we need to have like surveillance of different bio labs in the future, we should probably not make that centralized surveillance, but we should make that probably encrypted. Uh, uh, decentralized surveillance, like bottom-up surveillance. And so there are specific technologies even that we can leverage to like make these safety-enhancing uh, technologies a little bit more uh, safe. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, Nick Bostrom is in that sense really the an antithesis of me. I think the, there's one big known risk that we know, which is massive centralization uh, and having kind of top-down actors with loads of power that are in control of powerful technologies and gatekeeping who gets in and who gets out. And, you know, they're using it often in the name of safety and protecting everyone else. And I think that is the biggest risk of all that's very well known. I think it's happened many times in history. Whereas the opposite, hey, these technologies are more open. Yes, it, there is, we, we're not falling for sort of the, anyway, we're definitely agreeing that we want to see kind of a more decentralized future access to technologies with a process that's aware and working on solutions to mitigate against the risk. 
Alison, anything else you want to draw our listeners' attention to? Any shout-outs that you want to give? Anything you want to promote that you're working on right now? Well, um, if people are interested in any of the fields I mentioned, we have fellowships, virtual seminars, and in-person workshops in all of these. Um, and so they're all accessible from our website at bothset.org. Um, we have the end of the year kind of like big festival that you already mentioned. But like th there's uh, tons of ways to engage in all of these individual bits, um, depending on, you know, who you are and like what your strengths are and talents are. Uh, and if you're interested in just like being kind of kept up to speed, feel free to follow me on Twitter at Alison Demon or Foresight on Twitter. Um, and yeah, I just really want to thank you for uh, having me on your show. Uh, it's definitely like a really wonderful list of um, previous presenters and guests. And I'm sure that it will only keep on growing uh, as you're kind of like making your rounds through uh, the various bright minds that are lifting up our future. So thanks a lot for your really thoughtful questions and for having me on. And um, I'm hoping that uh, we get to build some of the technologies that we discussed today. Yeah, it was my absolute pleasure as well, Alison. And to anyone's listening, so Alison is going to join us remotely, probably as a speaker to the next Supercharging Health Summit in Prospera on April 21st. So check out infinitavc.com um, to find that event. And I can highly encourage you to come down to Prospera because many of the people that are in our community, analysis community and foresight are also involved. Some of them are coming and we can use it or we're using it as a test field to work on some of these new technologies. So thank you so much, Alison, for coming on the show and looking forward to see you again soon. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.